The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. Um, so, first question. How many of you ever look at the sky at night? I mean, I kind of do, have over the years. I've been blessed with a wife that really likes it, and I don't know how many years ago I bought her a telescope. I learned all kinds of things about the sky. <laughs> and I got like A in astronomy when I went through, <laughs> through the astronomy class a long time ago. And I feel like I've learned more through my wife than I ever did in the astronomy class. Uh, you know, although maybe that's just because it was long enough ago I forgot all this stuff. <clears throat> Anybody ever, what would you say is like the coolest thing? Does anybody have something that you've ever seen in the sky? Had an experience looking at the sky at night that you thought was so cool that it's like something worth telling somebody else about. It's not just, oh, the Milky Way is so big. Aurora Borealis, yeah. I was just asking, does anybody have anything, shall we say, share-worthy that's something you've seen? You've observed something in the sky, and you're like, wow, that, that's, that's like share-worthy. Jim's ahead of you, I'm sorry to say. Jim raised his hand first. <laughs> I think I was 18 years old. I was riding a motorcycle to uh, Glacier National Park, or home from Glacier National Park. About 3 a.m. in the morning, I was really struggling to stay awake, even on the motorcycle with the wind. It was kind of chilly at night. And at 3 a.m., all of a sudden, it just was a bright day outside as a fireball went overhead and disappeared in the distance. But it was, it was a large fireball, and it literally lit it up like daylight. It was just the most incredible thing. It brought me wide awake, and I was wide awake the rest of the, the, rest of the trip home, which is really amazing. Read about it, but never seen yeah. it. I think I just saw one of those in the news on a video. I think it was down in Australia just this week. Huh. So, Holland. We've been talking about this a little bit lately. I think it was six years ago now. We got to see a total eclipse in the path of totality where you can have your glasses on for a couple minutes and everything. And it, it's really true when they say that everything goes quiet, birds quit chirping and everything. And after that, you, I mean, I don't, I'd kind of heard of people that would, you know, chase total eclipses and they'd go see them wherever they were. And after seeing that one, I, I can understand why. And yeah, Clinton and Lucas agree. It was really, really, really cool. Yeah. All the process up to it and the totality with the silence and everything in and out of it. I'm not for sure. Ronnie, did you come up to our place in the driveway? Did we do that in the driveway out there? Or maybe it was Dwight. I don't know. It's not Dwight. I think you came up to our place during that eclipse, and we only got partial eclipse over there. But even partial eclipse, we, I think we were there was Peggy and you and I, and we were like, wow, we couldn't believe how much the temperature dropped in that little space of time. And we were, didn't even have a total eclipse here. Yeah, what Jim's talking about, that happened to Peggy and I. We were out in the backyard. This is before the pine trees were really big, so we had a much bigger vista of the sky back then. But we were out there laying on the ground, watching stars, counting how many satellites you saw going overhead, and trying to count um, um, shooting stars, meteorites crashing. And we saw one bolide, which is a, a fireball, came across the sky, came from, kind of came across the south, and about the time it got over the top of our shed from where we were laying, it, it exploded. We watched it explode, and we could hear it. I didn't know what one would sound like. It sounded like those poppers, you know, that people pop off at, at uh, 
New Year's Eve wasn't that loud. I was expecting it to be a little bit louder. I guess there are some that are really loud that really kind of rattle windows, but this was just kind of a, a loud pop. It was pretty cool. Yeah. So you got to you got to see and hear a loud one then. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't know what it was at first. I thought it was an aircraft that exploded in the air or something. But the next day, I, I can't remember what they called them. But, and it's <clears throat> and, uh, Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Next question. How many of you have have in the past or are now gardening? <laughs> okay. How many of you? Okay. The next question is: How many of you have or are now farming in some some agricultural capacity? Gordon, you should put your hand up. You raised apple trees. Yeah. Okay. Now, when you do all of that, and, and I was talking to Stan about this this morning, and he was talking about that they were watching beans grow really fast, as fast as the corn is just about right now. When you put stuff in the ground, do you have any guarantee that that's actually going to come up? I, I, I don't know. Have you guys ever had this problem? I hope this doesn't happen to farmers. But I know in my garden, I planted seed exactly according to instructions, and nothing comes up. Nothing. You even dig in there, and I, you don't even see them germinating. You don't see the little stuff coming out. What? <laughs> oh, there! I forgot to water them. <clears throat> this area, <clears throat> if if you grew up someplace other than here, then your experience is that you really are dependent on the weather, because here you guys can put water on it. I grew up in a place where you where you have farmers and they farm. And they put it in the ground, and once it's there, then they want some rain. They don't want tons of rain, but they want enough rain to really moisten the soil and have the stuff germinate. But then they don't want so much rain that you can't do anything, or that the crops, if they get too much rain, then the crops don't do well, and they sometimes they die. And I grew up with that all the time. Every summer was like wondering, you know, is it going to rain enough? Is it, is it going to be too dry? Is it going to rain too much? This is rolling the dice, you know. <laughs> They are. Farmers are big gamblers. Now you might say, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, part of what we're going to look at today, as we're continuing to look at our study on the glory of God, is we're going to be looking at God's glory in creation. We're going to be talking about some things with respect to that. Uh, some of it has to do with the heavens. Some of it has to do with the seasons and how that produces different things. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how many of you, I, some of you, I know a lot of farmers where I grew up, they kind of like winter a little bit. Because it gives them a break for a little while, you know. Um, but eventually you're like, okay, winter needs to be done and we need to get back to farming. <laughs> and you're hoping that the winter will break away at the right time and all of these things happen. We have seasons and we appreciate seasons. Seasons are good for us. And we're going to see that there's an aspect of seasons that are involved in the glory of God. So we're going to be looking at some of these things. But we're going to start our review at the first part here. So our first question is, and I don't have all of the review slides, so you're going to have to go with this, but our Hebrew word kavod, one word definition for that word. It's the word that's translated glory, but what's the background word? Weight. 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 Heaviness. Okay? And we used the example last week. 
you know, uh, it used to be kind of a statement out of the 60s that if something was really serious, you had people kind of in the, the hippie movement or whatever that they said, oh, that's heavy, man, you know. And what they meant by heavy was that's serious. That's a big deal. Okay, and that's that word kavod out of the Old Testament. Then we come to the New Testament where doxa, I, I'm, saying, I'm not trying to teach you Hebrew and Greek, but I want you to get in, at least in mind this idea of glory, the seriousness, the heaviness of it. But then doxa is more of a mental term. Does anybody remember what that basic idea is? What? An opinion. Always a right opinion in Scripture. Now, there are some places where the verb dakao can some means that people have an opinion, but they're wrong. <laughs> but doxa itself, when it refers to opinion, it's always a good opinion. There's another word that some of you guys know I like to use with this word also. Does anybody know what that word is? Reputation. 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 Don't you want to have a good reputation? You don't want to be a person with a bad reputation. I've had, you know, I, well, I've known people that sometimes they complain that pastors, Paul, Paul says one of the things about a pastor is he has to have a good testimony from those on the outside. And you go, how do you have a testimony, on, a good testimony on the outside? Well, one of the things I remember one of my professors telling me in seminary is always make sure you pay your bills. Because they've known pastors that had ruined the reputation of churches because they'd run bills up at places. And I grew up in an era, you have it, I think it's a little bit less now, but era where everybody had credit. I mean, my dad did that. You went to the grocery store, you bought groceries at the grocery store, Helen reached down under the counter, pulled the box out, set it out, pulled out your book, wrote down your tab, took the ticket, stapled it to the thing, and my dad would once a month, when he got paid, would go up there and pay off our grocery bill. But that, but you know what? A lot of people did that. There was a whole box of those things in there. Every, almost, I don't know how many people did that, but a lot of people did. I see, see a lot of people do that. Well, the problem with that was, is there are certain people that eventually wouldn't get credit anymore because they never paid their bills. <laughs> people are like, no, you've got to pay your bills off. You haven't paid those like that. And so that would be a bad reputation. You don't want that. And God's a God that has a good reputation for what he's done and what he's doing. So let's move on and let's into Psalm 19. Psalm 19. I don't know how many of you would have immediately gone to this passage, but this is, this is a, a great passage talking to us about God's glory with regard to the heavens. And we're going to look at just the first few verses here. There's a lot of things in this, in this psalm, but it says, verse 1, the heavens are telling or relating the glory of God. In other words, their expanse. Are the heavens very expansive? Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm annoying my wife. I'm reading right a, uh, a book by an unsaved, unbeliever, obviously unbeliever, unsaved unbeliever, but he's writing on, on history, the history of everything, and he's going through um, um, the universe. He talked about the Big Bang and all of this and the expanse of the heavens in another chapter. And it, he shares some interesting things from science point of view, but you're just like, Man, it's just incredible. This person has to have this ability to put confidence in these theories rather than in God. To me, is amazing. But he was talking about how vast the universe is. And I think we all get that. How vast the universe is. He says the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. 
I mean, Dwight was telling me, I think he has a grandson that paints miniatures. You know what miniatures are? Like little figures, right? Little soldier figures, probably medieval soldiers. I don't know exactly. Uh, Steve Adams, who's spoken here, he's, he's done this. And then they paint these things in detail. And it's little things. And that's pretty impressive that a person has, as Dwight would admit, the patience to paint those little teeny things in detail with a little brush. But you know what's really impressive? Somebody that on a big grand scale, like God has done, create this incredibly massive universe of which, and I think most of you are aware of this, most of the light in most of the stars in the universe, the majority of it is not seen. We pick it up as radio signals, but it's not visible. Even with the biggest, most impressive light gathering telescopes, they still can't see these things. They only know they're there by the radio waves, the radio signals, as it were, that, that come off, the light, as that light comes off of those things. And so people don't see it, but they get an idea of how big this is. It's vast. And what it shows you, it says there, is the work of his hands. So you're looking like somebody with their hands painting a little figure or the work of their hands doing something so big as to create this entire universe. Verse 2 Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So it's like every day and all night, this universe is talking to us. What's it talking to us about? You can all figure this out. It's telling us. It's telling us that there's a God. There's a God who put it together. That this is the work of somebody that did something intelligent. This stuff doesn't just happen. We come into this building. We don't look at this and go, wow, it's amazing that this collection of earthen materials kind of fell together like this and formed these walls. How in the world did that ever happen? And how in the world did these trees lose their bark and fall on top and form? I mean, none of us think that. If somebody was doing that, we'd say, you need to see a doctor. <laughs> Something's wrong with you. We look at this and we know that somebody designed and built this. Somebody built all the materials. They built, they made the paint on the wall. They made the, uh, mined the gypsum that they made that out. And then took the paper that come from trees and they put that together. And all of this stuff was things that people did. And this is what the psalmist is saying here. It's David's telling us, this is talking to us. This creation is talking to us all day, every day. And at night, it is continuing to do this. Verse 3, but there here he says, there is no speech, nor, there, nor are there words. In other words, it's not that if you sit and listen hard enough that you're going to hear a voice. We have, around the world, sci scientists, people that are studying the skies, they have antennas, not to study the stars themselves, but they're listening for an intelligent radio signal. They're listening for a voice from another world. And you know, there is a voice out there, but they don't want to admit it's there. There's the voice of God speaking through the stars, through the heavens, saying, I made this. Think of how orderly this is. Think of how orderly all of this is that this goes overhead. That every, we can tell the seasons. People have been telling the seasons for thousands of years. For thousands of years, people have been navigating by the stars. 
they had some limitations in how they did that until the advent of the compass. But uh, nonetheless, they navigated by the stars for a long time. And he says, so there's no speech nor their words, that their voice is not heard. In other words, without these things, they, they're still being heard out there. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world in them. He has placed a tent for the sun because it disappears, which it's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Right now, I wish he'd stay in bed just a little bit longer in the morning because that light comes in my bedroom at a little after 4.30, and I'd start waking up, and I would rather sleep until 5.30. But anyway, that's my opinion. You know, but this is where we live, right? Our seasons change. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from them. And then in the last part of this, he takes that message and he talks about a very specific written message that God's given in the law for Israel. And he says that in the following verses, which we're not going to look at. But the first part of this, he says, you ought to pay attention. What he's doing is David is appealing to Israel. You ought to pay attention to God because creation out there is telling them God's there and you ought to be paying attention. And he says, that's God's glory. That's God's reputation. He's so big and so powerful that he can create this. And it's orderly. And it's not chaos. It's orderly. It's not chaos out there. It's orderly. Move on to the next one, Psalm 96. Psalm 96. The psalmist here encourages the people in verse 1 of Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. And when we're talking salvation here, salvation in the Old Testament is just a tricky thing to think about. Because sometimes that salvation, in a few places, definitely refers to God spiritually saving people. But most of the time, that salvation is talking about God's physical deliverance of people from physical harm, which is what he promised Israel as part of the law. So he goes on from here and he says, tell of his glory among the nations. In other words, he's calling Israel that out there among these people that live around you, you ought to be saying something about God's weight. Not that God's heavy set. That's not what he's talking about. We all know that. About the, his glory, his weight, in the sense that God is to be taken seriously. You don't goof around with God. You don't mess around with God. And I bet every one of us at one time or another in here probably is guilty of this, but you hear jokes all the time in the people where, you know, people said, well, you know, this happened and da-da-da-da-da. And then God came along and the people were like, well, how did that happen? And God's like, oh, oh sorry. And, and it's a joke. And people all, ha-ha, they all laugh. And, and what ends up happening is the world does not have a problem with making jokes where God is the butt of the joke. And yet he is saying here, rather than making God the butt of a joke, he says you ought to be those that when you think of this, his salvation and you think of what he does, he says that you tell of his glory among the nations. You're telling them, wait a second, my God is a God to be taken seriously. He is not a God to be joked with. He is not a God that you make fun of. Not that God couldn't take it. God's not up there in heaven going, what? Oh, well, you got made. No, that's not God. 
But he is a God to be taken seriously. And guess what? There will be a point in time in which God will deal with those that have essentially mocked him and basically pushed him to the side and said, I don't really need you. I make my own God, whatever else. It says his wonderful deeds among the peoples. You ought to tell them. Let me tell you about the things that God's done. Emily yesterday, we, we'd had the storms went through here. Emily was out on her drive yesterday. She did a no-no. She had her phone out, had the camera going. She's driving down the road and she's taking, she does this for us once in a while. But she's taking a video where you've got this beautiful, beautiful sliver of orange sky with these dark clouds above it. I can't remember exactly how my wife said it because I remember what, what she says. How did, how did you reply to her thing specifically? Or you did say, go God. Okay, I thought there was another thing that you said. She said, go God. What does that mean, go God? It's like, go God, yes, that's great. Do we do that with the things that God does? <clears throat> In other words, take, a, take an example here. Gordon, the other night, after Bible study, we're t it's, uh, Carmen had prayer requests, and then Gordon says, maybe I should share this. And he talks about going to work. He's going to put up a fence for this, for this lady and the situation. And she comes out, and essentially Gordon says, she's just, I don't know how to put it. She just unloaded. She just unloaded, yeah. She's going through a lot of hard stuff in her life. I mean, could you, you, all, you can imagine what that's like if you have somebody that you care about deeply and they're going through something so horrible and you're going, in fact, maybe it's even worse that that person, because of their dementia, they don't even know how horrible their circumstance is. But you do. And it's hard for you. And then God gives Gordon an hour and a half. Gordon went there to do physical work of getting a fence ready. But God had an appointment with God's will to do something else, to take some time and to share some things about God and who God is with people. And he tells them there, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the people. Do we give God credit? I mean, when you go to work, I remember my wife, she was, this did not bother her at all. When she was teaching up at the school for 20 some years up there, and there were people that would go, wow, that's really kind of interesting how that worked out. You know, well, that's really incredible. That was lucky. My wife would say, that's God. Now, she didn't say that for just every little thing that came along, but the things that were really appropriate. And sometimes those people go, oh, well, well yeah, yeah. Instead of calling that luck, I should say that that was God because there were people that should have known better at times. And do we do that? Do we give God credit out there among the nations for some things that we can truly say God's worthy of the credit of that? And so he says his wonderful deeds. Verse 4, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. There's a, that's another song. I don't remember if it's exactly from that verse because that phrase probably is used in another psalm too. He is to be feared above all gods. Now are there a lot of other gods out there? Well, just wait. The next verse says... For all the gods of the people are idols. And that word idol that he uses here is in the Hebrew a word that means just a worthless thing. They're just a worthless thing. Which is kind of, when we talk about a person has idle hands, <laughs> which is a little, we usually by that, it's a different word. <laughs> we use, well, they're worthless right now. They're not doing anything, right? 
But he says those idols are worthless. So God is to be feared. Why are you fearing those things? Why, he says, are you worried about the God that those people worship? That God that's shaped out of some silver or gold or out of a rock or a piece of wood. And we're not going to go back over to Isaiah where Isaiah, God mocks idolatry through Isaiah saying, you guys, take a block of wood and you cut it and you make an idol out of it. But you take that same piece of wood and you cut it up and put it in and make a fire out of it or maybe make a stool to sit on. And you don't see the, the mental disconnect that the thing you sit on and the thing you burn to cook with is now something you bow down to? What's wrong with your thinking? And so he says here, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless things. But the Lord, he's not worthless. He, just like we saw in Psalm 19, he made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. <coughs> Those expressions there in verse 6, splendor and majesty, um, that he uses here to talk about those things. That word that's translated majesty or is adornment. It's like there's splendor. And then you come and adorn that splendor with other things. I, I got a nice new shirt. My wife let me get a new plaid shirt. I've been, my daughter's been trying to get me to go non-plaid. But man, I've been saying I've been missing my plaid. So recently we were someplace and found a really good deal on an inexpensive plaid shirt. Really thankful. But this isn't fancy adornment, is it? This is, I've seen some really fancy shirts. You go down to Walla Walla, this was cheap. <laughs> you go down to Walla Walla and there's a clothing company in downtown Walla Walla. You walk by there and they've got some really fancy shirts with, made out of really fancy thread. Probably fancier than this thread, probably. <laughs> Thread's thread, isn't it? I know, I know that's not always the case. But I pull up and it's like, oh, I'd like that. And you pull up, that's a nice, nice shirt. And you pull it up and you look at the price tag, $225. My wife had never let me spend that much money on a shirt for me, not only because it's a ridiculous amount of money to spend on a shirt, but because I destroy everything, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it won't be too long before this has something spilled on it and won't come out. You know, that's Tim. But the idea of this majesty and splendor here with God, or this splendor and majesty here, is that God, it's like God clothes himself with things that are really incredible. We think of clothing ourselves with really fine clothing, dignitaries. You think of like royalty. It wasn't that long ago that, uh, in, that Britain crowned their new king. They had their coronation. And he's not just showing up there just in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt, you know. And they show up in clothes that are appropriate for the thing. And he's saying, God, and God doesn't wear clothes. He clothes himself by what he does. Everybody gets him? I think that's easy. When it says that, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary, or literally they define his, uh, they make this his holy place. But I, as going through this in the Hebrew, I would take that last phrase of verse 6, strength and beauty are his holiness, or are his holy place. I don't think he needs, God doesn't have a holy place. They are his holy place, his very strength and his beauty. Let's move on to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. <clears throat> Psalm 104 in verse 1. Blessed is the Lord, O my bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You have you are clothed with splendor and majesty. That's the, that's the second verse to the song that we sang today. 
okay? You are clothed with splendor majesty. Same expression that we just saw over there in Psalm 96. That he has, like, it's like he's putting on these really fancy clothes, and then with those fancy clothes, he's putting on these other adornments, these, shall we say, the, 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 the cords that go over. Dwight was just talking about his granddaughter graduating. And, and a lot of kids, when they graduate, they get cords that they wear to say, these are things that I've accomplished, and I get to wear these cords. Sometimes some graduations, they let them wear their medals and all those things. All those are the adornments that say, hey, this person did something while they were here. They could just walk across the line in the robe and collector thing, but the cords and the medals and such say, while I was here, I accomplished some things. Okay, this was the idea. So he says, here, you are clothed with splendor in this adornment. You cover yourself with light like a cloak. We're, to, we're told this, Paul tells us over in 1 Timothy 6, God dwells in light that we cannot at the present time, does anybody know what the next word is? We cannot approach. Yeah, he's unapproachable in that light at the present time. In fact, not only are we can't approach him, he says, but we can't see him at the present time. There is a time in the future where after Jesus has, has made us what we're supposed to be, we will be able to be in the, in the presence of the Father. We will be able to. I, I grew up saying, we'll never see God the Father, ever. No. They, they base that off of some verses that they make those verses be for all time and eternity because we've got other verses that say, when he's done with this, we will be in his presence. But one of the things is he wears light like we wear clothes. Does God have a physical body? Yeah. We have people around here that teach that. Yeah, the Mormons, they believe God actually exists in a physical form, a physical body. He's an exalted man that's just reached God head ahead of you and I. And I don't know what they were, but you know what? There's some people that call themselves Christians. They're a, they're a, a splinter part of the charismatic movement. They think God, also, God the Father also has a physical body. And they even, I've listened to their preachers and read things. Their preachers actually say that he even wears the finest three-piece suits you've ever seen. Because <laughs> they, they think you know, pastors getting up front should wear three-piece suits. I gave that up a long time ago here, thanks to my wife. But they think God wears those. And these people call themselves Christians within the charismatic movement. That's not saying all charismatics. I'm just saying that that's where that's, that group is part of. But he says he wears light. See, he's not a physical being, but God wears light. He is a being. He has a form. It's just not physical because it's spirit, but he has a form. Jesus said that. No one has ever seen his form, and he's talking about the Father. And that's in John 5. Jim's probably been over that in working on this stuff. I'm excited for Jim's study to see where this goes. Um, test him. See if he's right. No, I'm not there. <laughs> no, I want to go, go through this stuff because I, you, we've been through some of this stuff on the Father in the past, but as you said, we've only done a little bit on it. I want to see this broken out more, so I'm looking forward to this. Anyway, so that's an that's a advertisement for Jim's hour. Anyway, but he's wearing light, and then he stretches out the heaven like a curtain. Think of how we do that. Think of how we stretch out curtains. And probably not curtains in the way that we think of windows. They would put curtains on walls. They would put curtains up for privacy out in public spaces, which seems odd to us a little bit. 
but when you were at a society where people did move around a little bit more, you kind of mark off your space with curtains. And so he says, he stretches out the heavens there like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds, even his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. <coughs> he established the earth on its foundation so that it does not totter, literally, out into the ages. <coughs> there is a time coming in the future when it's going to totter. He tells us that in Isaiah. He's going to make it rock back and forth like a drunkard, but that's because he's judging the earth. You and I won't be here when that happens. But that is coming. But at the present time, <clears throat> until he enters into that time of judgment, the earth stands firm. We know the earth does this. We know it kind of rocks on its thing. But it's not a, it's not a drunken thing where all of us are wondering whether we're going to fall off the planet at any moment. Mm. Excuse me. <clears throat> so... This is God. He, he is this God that's incredible. He uh, has created the earth like this. If you jump down to verse 10, he sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains and they give drink to every beast of the field, the wide donkey, besides them the birds of the heaven. You go verse 14, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle, vegetation for the labor of man. We were talking, I asked him about um, gardening and farming here at the beginning. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, one man plants, another man uh, waters, but God gives the increase. God's the one that makes it grow. You can do all the right things, and it still may not, may not turn out. God, in the end, is the one. And this is exactly what the psalmist is saying. Look at God. He's a God that's incredible in the heavens, wears light. <clears throat> He's established the earth so that it stays stable. He sends out water for the sake of the animals, but he also is the one that causes things to grow in the earth. <coughs> we're going to come back to that before we're done today, um, an opportunity that you and I have when we think about this. But this is all of this is a statement of God's glory. When we think about this God, that he's so big, lives in light, but he causes these things. It's like, how many of you see God in light? You look up at the sky, if you look real hard, you figure out heaven might be there. No, that, that's not what he's talking about for us right now. How do we see this glory of God? We see it by what happens in the order of creation. That the earth continues to stay here. It's not, we're, we're not on a planet. You, you watch these sci-fi movies and you always have people that are on planets. So they're in a future of the earth where people are trying to figure out how to get off the planet. Because the planet's going to split open at any moment. And we're all going to perish. So we're trying to build all these rockets and get people to another place. And makes for good sci-fi, but it's not biblical. Because God's holding the earth like this. He's making it stable. And he's sending forth water to provide for living creatures living on the earth, and he causes things to grow so that we get to eat. And Paul's actually going to refer to this uh, over in the book of Acts. Turn over to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. <clears throat> Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, is glory. Now, when we're talking about name, I think Jim mentioned this in his class, but we do this every once in a while. When we talk about name, it could be, well, your name's Bob. You know, your name is, and uh, 
In fact, uh, Peggy had a, a, a brother-in-law, uh, has a brother-in-law, excuse me, and he had a relative. I never met this guy, but they had his name. And when they would use that name, they all laughed because there was, because this guy just was inept at everything he did. And so when something was, didn't go right, well, I even worked in a, in a warehouse like that where there was a guy that ran one department in there and they said, they, they call his name was Roger, like my dad's name, except without a D. And they would always say, if you, if you got caught standing around on the job not working, they said, you're Raji. <laughs> you're Raji. <laughs> you know why they called it Raji? Because that's the way he ran his department. He just always just moved at a snail's pace, hardly ever seemed to get anything done. And everybody was like, how in the world does he even make money down there in that department? <laughs> just the way this guy was. So you all understand, sometimes when we're talking about a name, sometimes there's a character that we attach to that name, right? Well, he's saying here, not to us, O oh Lord, but to your name, to your character, to who you are. When we think of the name God, when we think of the name Yahweh, Jehovah, however we pronounce that, when we think of that name, what should come to mind? This is what he's getting at. Because of, now it's not his creative power. Now it's not his holding power that he's continuing to hold things but because of your loving kindness because of your truth in other words here the psalmist is calling israel to stop and say have you ever thought about the fact of how lovingly kind god is we've talked about this 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 hebrew word loving kindness before but what word in english do we use new testament word do we use that more approximates this idea. What? Grace. Grace. Now, this isn't the word for grace. This has some other things attached to it than just the idea of grace, but it really is connected with our grace. And we think of that God is a gracious God. He's a faithful, this, this word has the idea that God's kind, that God's faithful or dependable. All those things are, wound, are bound up in this word. And he says here of it, he says, because of his loving kindness, because you have a God that's faithful and dependable and kind, this God that is from their perspective, where they would use this word, we would look back and say, well, that's like God's grace with some other things attached with it. And it says, and then because of his truth. Truth really is laying an emphasis on the fact that not only is God genuine, but because God's genuine, he's dependable. I hate to be that person that tells somebody, oh, you need help on Tuesday? I'll be there Tuesday. Yeah, I'll be there Tuesday morning. You need help. Eight o'clock? Yeah, okay. And then it's like Tuesday, Monday night comes along. It's like, oh man, this is there and I'm, I'm not going to make it. And you're not dependable. You, you said something, but you're not going to follow through and you're not going to be true. See, God's not like that. God's very nature is that he's always true. And so he always acts in truth. And he says those things are aspects of his name that we ought to pronounce and say, this is his reputation. This, he's saying, is God's weight. God is heavy, man, because he is long, or he is, excuse me, lovingly kind, and he is truth. Hope you didn't mind the, the hippie talk there. Verse 2, why should the nation say, where now is their God? You know? But our God is in heavens. How does he does whatever he pleases? See, the nations want to know, <coughs> oh, we want to see your God. Where's your God? I'll show you our God. We got him in this little thing in here, and he's gold and 
Remember what happened to Dagon, the god of the Philistines? When Israel captured, yeah, the pictures they have of images of Dagon, he's always like this. Anyway, <clears throat> and when they took the ark and they put it in the temple of Dagon, what happened to Dagon? He fell down. And they're like, oh, whoa, wait a second. Dagon can't fall before God. So they set it back up in the thing. The next day, it falls down and it thinks in his Hands broke off. I'm looking to my wife because she went through this with her class more recently. And then, was it a third time or just two, two times? Because then he fell on the threshold and that really freaked them out. And all of that was just God saying, it's God's way of saying, that you're just worshiping a stupid piece of rock or a stupid piece of metal. I'm the real God. And so he says, Where, they're saying, where's your God? He says, our God's in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Their idols, and this word for idol that he uses here is a word meaning something that's shaped or carved. In other words, you made the God. God. This isn't God. You made this. Their silver and gold, the work of man's hand. They have no mouths, so they cannot speak. They have, they have or excuse me, they have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes, but they can't see because what do you carve a mouth in them? You carve eyes in them. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Pray to them all you want. They're not going to listen because they're not real. They have noses. They can't smell. They have hands. Dagon had hands, but they can't feel anything. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them, now you look at all those things. You can't see. You can't hear. You can't speak. You can't feel. You can't walk. You can't smell. In other words, you can't do anything. And what does he say? Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who puts trust in them. Now, in our culture today, most people where we live aren't bowing down to a little rock that's been carved into the shape of some animal or some creature like this or a piece of silver like that or gold. But are there things today that people bow down to? Oh, yeah. People bow down to stuff all around us. Sometimes we bow down to our buildings, our houses. Sometimes we bow down to our cars. Sometimes we bow down to, I don't know, <laughs> our, our boat. We, I don't know. We bow down to our shoes. I mean, we bow down to stuff. We make stuff our gods. And when we bow down to those things, we end up, just like he's saying here, we end up being like him where we ought to be those that acknowledge that we have a God that does whatever he pleases. And he's in heaven. And he doesn't need to be served. He doesn't need to be fed. He doesn't need you to come in and tell him what's going on because he can't figure it out. He can't see it because he's got eyes and so on and so forth. But he doesn't need this. So, verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. I never, you guys all get that. You don't need this. But I always remember when I was a kid and you'd have these verses where it talked about God being a shield and you're always like, a shield? he's a shield? What in the world is, he's a shield? I never got that. But they were in a culture where almost every year, remember it said that in the time of David? You remember David? It said, and in the springtime, the time when the kings went out to fight, it's like every year, it's like, we're not going to fight in the wintertime. It's too cold. We're all going home. But springtime, now all these different small local kings had come together and they'd have battles out in these things, trying to take territory. We want your farmland. You know, if Jeff was back then, you know, and he's farming, he and his brother want more farmland, they'd have to rally up a small force 
to go out there and defeat those enemies so they could take their farmland. They didn't make a bid on buying land and stuff like that. Kind of a crazy way to live, but this is kind of the way that culture was. And a shield was something that everybody understood and appreciated because it kept you from getting hit by their arrows and by their javelins. And he says, God's your shield. He's the one that's going to protect you. These other, these false gods, these things, carved things, they can't do anything. So we have a God that is glorious because he's created all this. We have a God that in creating all this sustains all of it and provides for us on this. We have a God, as we look at here at the end, that actually can hear, can respond, can act, unlike people that bow down to foolish other things. Now, take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm, or excuse me, Philippians chapter 2. We started out in Psalm 19 talking about God's glory being visible in the heavens. And the purpose of our study that we're looking at is looking at glory with regard to the church. This study is still part of what we just got done looking at when we're looking at the role of women in the church. Because this is not a study on the church. We've done studies on the church. What is the church? How does the church work and all these? This study is called church dynamics, meaning what are things that affect how we work? And how you understand the role of women in the church, that affects something about how the church works. But... Now we've moved into a section where we're looking at how the church functions with respect to the glory of God. In fact, um, in Jim's class, there was something, and I don't know if this ran through anybody else's mind, but when he was looking at people that are trying to decide what are the non-essentials of the faith, their definition of a non-essential is anything that does not affect salvation. And I don't know how long that, that verbiage or that use has been around, but what's happened is... It probably in the last century, we had a lot of, you know, of evangelicals, people that we would be in some agreement with on a number of these things that determined the thing that unites the whole Bible is that the Bible is a history of salvation. No. The Bible is God's story. We sang that song this morning. It's God's story. It's about what God's doing. And therefore, really... Without ever, you don't have to use the word glory every time you do it. But really what the Bible is, is it's talking about how God's shown his glory. And is his glory seen in salvation? Yes. We saw a passage that talked about that this morning. But God's glory is seen in a lot of other things. Creation is part of God's glory. And so this is, the Bible really is kind of telling us something about God's story. Not just how God saves mankind. I think we like that because we like everything to be about us, right? <laughs> well, it's about what God did for us because we're so great. And I granted, I realized most evangelicals would say, no, no, that's not what we mean. But don't we kind of come across that way a little bit? So when we're talking about God's glory, there should be an aspect of what the church is doing that really should be about God's reputation, God's weight, God's who God is. Philippians chapter 2. I really want you to think about what he says here. In Philippians chapter 2. And let's go to verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not just in my presence only, but even now much more in my absence, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which we've told you before. 
That means my job is not to get is not to work out Ben's salvation. I can encourage Ben with regard to his salvation, but my job is not to be working out his salvation. His job is not working out mine. I'm working out my salvation. I'm taking the salvation God's given and I'm doing that. I can encourage other people to do it just like they can encourage me, but I'm not working out theirs. I can't make you be whatever I think you should be or even what I, what I see God says you should be. I can't make you do that. I'm the only person that I can have that, that ability to control is I can control what I do, but I cannot control what you do. When we were over a couple of weeks back taking care of the grandkids, my grandson has a knack for taking a room and taking a room that's been neatly picked up and turning it within a short space of time to chaos. His little magnet letters and animals are all over the room. His cars are all over the room. His plastic slide is upside down. Everything's all over. And I started picking stuff up and I said, no, 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 this is not going to work. This kid's got to learn to start cleaning stuff up. And his mom says she's doing this. And I did what, with him what I did with my daughters. I took them, hold one hand, take this hand, walk down, pick up with this hand, put it in the box. Pick up with this hand, put it in the box. But, you know, makes a lot of work for you. But what I'm training him is you're not going to get out of this, bud. You're going to pick all these things up even if I'm doing it with you. And eventually, I stopped, and you know what he started? He started picking stuff up and putting it in the box himself. Now, I was making him do it. But once I stop making him do it, does he really do it or not? Well, sometimes not. <laughs> After a while, he got bored, he quit. I can only make myself do what God has given me to do. I can't make anybody else. So anyway, I'm sorry. I probably sat on that longer than necessary. But he says, verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you. And this is what he does. He puts the desire in you. You ever wonder why you got those good desires when you got saved? It's because God, the father, put them in you because you are his child. And when you become his child, there are certain things that come with being a child of God. And some of it is you have desires that come from him. So he says <clears throat> here, he's the one that works in you to desire, and then to do the work with regard to his pleasure. Your, your part, you make the choice. He puts the desire. He will accomplish the work, but you've got to choose to cooperate. You've got to choose to say, yeah, and we'll do this. So then he says, verse 14, and I believe this is what he's getting at in, this, in these verses, do all things then without grumbling and disputing or arguing. Now you know why he has to say that? Because if you read the whole book of Philippians, you've got people that they're upset because, well, I did this. Don't you remember 20 years ago when I painted that room and now you're painting over it? I'm, I always use that example because that happened in my parents' church many years ago. And there were some people going, well, Mrs. So-and-so painted that. You can't paint. You can't take down the curtains that she put up 40 years ago, even though they're so brittle, you can almost poke your hands through the material, replace them. It's like we always... And so people grumble and complain. Or somebody comes and does a job and go, why am I the only one that ever does this? Stan never shows up and does this thing. Always me. Or when he does show, he sits around and drinks coffee while I work. Yeah, he must have been a government. No, no. you know what I'm saying? People mock like this. Stan, <laughs> yeah. Stan, doesn't, Stan doesn't do that. But you get the, the idea. But he says, do things without grace. Because this is what's happening in the church. People are grumbling and complaining. 
And he says, if you would do that, if you would serve, if you would. So this, this is practical now. This is talking about the dynamic of the church. Whenever you do, whatever you recognize God to be giving you as an opportunity to serve, whatever that is, showing up to clean the church. I, I, I try to do this every time somebody comes and cleans the church. If I'm here, I try to personally thank them because I appreciate that. Because my wife will tell you, it drives me nuts when I walk and there's all kinds of junk all down the middle of this or down in the basement floor. That kind of stuff drives me nuts. It drives me nuts at home, it drives me nuts here. And so when somebody takes time to clean that, I'm like, I appreciate that. But I appreciate it for your sake. So I say that because when you serve, you should do it without grumbling and complaining. It's really easy to grumble and complain about all kinds of stuff. And he says, if you would do that, you would then prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. It's not, you're not a, you don't become a child of God by doing this, but you're a blameless and innocent child of God, a brother reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In other words, the, our whole race that we live around, everybody in that race of unsaved people, they're all grumblers and complainers. It's their history. And we could look at plenty of verses about that. But he says at the end of it, among whom you, what does it say? Shine like little lights. Some of your modern translations say like little stars. It isn't the word star, but it is a word that, does, that can refer to them. Like stars in the world. What did we start off with in Psalm 19? That the heavens declare the glory of God. They still are declaring the glory of God that way. But he says, you want to know another way that you can be involved in declaring the glory of God? By serving in the body of Christ and not grumbling and arguing about it when you do, but doing it with a good attitude. And you have the ability to choose to have a good attitude when you serve. That's a dynamic in the church. If every one of us served in, the, in our church and we served with other believers where we come in contact with them and we did it without grumbling and complaining, we shine like lights. We are saying something about the glory and the reputation of God, just like creation is saying something. Except it's something that's more immediate here with people that you're around that they're going, I got to see that. I got to see that person take that opportunity. I had a couple of others, I'm, due to the sake of time, 1 Peter chapter 4 says that when you speak by God's power, if God gives you an opportunity to open your mouth, you can rely on your own power. Peter says, speak from God's power, and when you do that, God is glorified. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11. If I can turn there, 1 Peter 4, 11. For whoever speaks, let it be with the with the utterances of God, whoever serves, let it be for the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion or the power forever and ever. God is glorified when you speak, it, speak what he wants you to say, and you're doing this by his power, not just by your own, not just trying to come up with it on your own. One of the things Jim and I were talking about this this morning about, well, he was kind of talking with all the class about this, but about why sometimes it's so hard to find really good material on some of these things and sometimes it's I think it's people think too hard about stuff they think too hard and too deep from a human point of view I've got to find something deep down in there a lot of God's word 
Seriously, a lot of God's word, if you just read it and take it for what it says, it's pretty plain. It's pretty clear as to what God's trying to get at. But the problem is, is that doesn't make for great scholarship. <laughs> How do you write a 500-page dissertation? He was talking about somebody did, and that was a good dissertation. But how do you write a 500-page dissertation if you just take God at what he says? You've you got to put a lot more embellishment in there, a lot more stuff. And I'm, I shouldn't be mocking people doing that, but I'm just saying, sometimes we just need to say what God wants us to say in these things. And God's glorified by that. The last one I want to look at here, Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. And this one goes with that idea of how God provides that, the water that waters the earth and all of these different things. And this is Paul speaking to a Gentile community that think that he's uh, Mercury and they think that Barnabas is Zeus. And the reason for that is Mercury is the God that talked and Zeus was the chief god that sat there and he didn't talk he let mercury do all this communication for him so that meant paul was doing most of the chatter talk chatter's derogatory sorry verse he says then in this passage here we go to verse 16. well let's go back to verse 15 and he's saying men why are you doing these things we are also men of the same nature in other words we're just like you we're people and we preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things that he's false idols zeus and mercury to the living God who has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them. Kind of what we were looking at over there in Psalms. And in the generations gone by, he let all the nations go their own way. In other words, he wasn't chasing after all those nations. He focused for about 2,000 years on the people of Israel, which is why Israelology is actually a worthwhile study because there's a lot to be said there. But then, verse 17, but he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good. How did, he, how did he do good? He gave rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. I love springtime. I really love springtime. But you know one of the things I really love of fall, even though the weather's changing and we're moving into cooler weather? The apples are on. And there's nothing better, in my opinion, than getting a really good tree-ripe apple and biting into that, going, man, that tastes good! Not one of those that sat in storage for 12 months and you eat it and you're like, cardboard. If you guys ever know, sometimes they're good. But he makes our hearts glad. And it's a testimony. We've talked about this. God has not left himself without a witness. The, the creation out there is saying something, but also the orderliness of the creation and the fact, as we saw over there in the psalm, that he provides the springs and he provides the rain and he provides the fruitful seasons so that we actually can eat. And not just eat grass. People survived on grass because they don't have other food, but actually get to eat well. You ever stop to think about that? It's, I, I honestly, I hate to admit this, but I honestly think in my life, it's probably one of the things that I'm most disappointed with. It's in that list. Is that I sit down and eat a lot of really good food and I don't take time to thank God for it enough. I'm not eating stuff that's like, ugh, thanks Peg for making this boiled spinach again. Some of you love that. <laughs> She's not, she doesn't do that. She doesn't do that. That's what I'm saying. She makes good stuff, and I like it. 
I like the stuff that she makes. I like this. But she gets it because she has good ingredients and good food and fruits and vegetables. And she cooked, she cooked up a whole bunch. She, she made meatless sandwiches for us the other day. I was kind of mm, I'm a meat guy. But you know what? She grilled all these veggies and we made sandwiches on them. We ate them twice and they were really, really good. I don't want to make a habit of it, but they were really, really good. I, I want my hamburger with so no, anyway. Seriously. But those are things that we get from the earth and we can appreciate that and they're a testimony. And I think that that's a thing because we live in a big agricultural area. That's a place where we can say, hey, people, this is God. God's the one that makes all this possible. You say, no, the irrigation district does. Oh, God could shut all that down if he wanted to. He could stop the water, the supplies of water to the north and pretty soon Roosevelt would dry up and there wouldn't be anything. He could do that if he wanted to. That's not what he's doing, but he could. We really need to recognize God's the one that allows us to have these things. And I think like Peter, we can glorify God by recognizing before others and for ourselves what God provides. See, we're looking at these examples of God's glory in Psalms and then seeing parallels. They're not exactly everything the same. God's doing different things with us. But there are parallels that just show us we also have opportunities in similar areas that affect the way we are, the way we get along, the way we speak, the way we encourage people to thank God. Any of you ever go down for the Sunday potluck down there and going, oh man, salad this week? I say that because last week was salad week, right? I don't think there was a hot dish down there. Everything was salads. You know what? They were all good. I had some of all of them. They were good. And for us to be able to say, this is thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you let us eat. And let us eat stuff that brings joy, gladness to us. And that's encouraging to other people to make them stop and think, yeah. Yeah, we do get to eat because of God. Thank you. Father, we're thankful for this time. Being reminded of your glory in these, uh, through these, the writings of these psalmists that are praising you. They're psalming you for your glory, for your reputation, for the things that you have done, the things you are doing. And we get the privilege of being involved in some of those kinds of things also where we are today. And we want to thank you for that. We want to recognize your great power, your great glory in allowing these things that we get to experience. And as we go downstairs, hey, we need to thank you that you're going to allow us to eat some food and enjoy ourselves in addition to the fellowship that we share around the table. And so we thank you for that food. Thank you for the morning then, and for those you've allowed to be here, and ask that we might be an encouragement to one another in the moments to follow. Amen.